Recently, a good friend and I were talking about and marveling in the atonement of Christ, the exclusive, unique, all-sufficient, and final nature of Christ's sacrifice, particularly as set forth in a letter to the Hebrews. In fact, let me just show you the quote that we were reading. It's from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through 18, where he says this, quote, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, quote, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. End quote. Hebrews 10.14-18 So as my friend and I were just discussing these things, uh, we both came to a, a kind of a pause as we considered these words carefully and even prayerfully. And as we did, we realized that the all-sufficient, permanent nature of the atonement on our behalf is truly breathtaking. In fact, it's really beyond the grasp of unaided human reason. It's impossible to convey it, especially to an unbeliever. It's just too much. It's It's too wide. It's too deep. Only the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit can begin to take in Uh, the scope for us of this gracious provision on our behalf. Only by the ministry of the Spirit can we even begin. So it was the content particularly of verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then followed up by verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, if we accept that that is true, that that sacrifice on our behalf was not only perfect, it was final, it was all-sufficient, so that we can never legitimately take anything away from it, nor can we legitimately add anything to it. And because it's final, we really live in a place of being utterly forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. We will never be more forgiven than we are at this moment. Think of that. Let that set in. Let that settle in for a moment. You will never be more accepted by the Father than you are this moment in His Son. So, Having both been and have a liturgical background, my friend and I had to ask the question then, well, where then does the confession of sins fit into the Christian life? Given the exclusive, unique, final, all-sufficient nature of our atonement in Christ, why do we continue to confess our sins? Now, don't get panicked. Some people will get riled even by the fact that I asked that question. Some people might even get upset, say, we we must confess our sins, they will cry. If we don't confess our sins, we'll be in 
eternal peril. But is that true? Is there a different reason that we confess our sins? And what does the Bible mean about confessing sins, especially in the life of the believer? So I want to invite you to participate in a study that I've begun called On Christian Confession, and particularly on this point of confessing sins, which we will then take step two to our confession of who Jesus is. We're going to look at the word confession. We're going to look at several words, including fellowship, the word sin, the word confession, uh, the word um, having to do with, um, let's see here, cleansing. What, what, what are these words mean? And I, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to go with me on this, to go deep with me on this. You know, um, one of the points of assurance that we can have as Christians is that, and that one of the points of assurance that we are Christ's disciples is that we're willing to continue in his word in order to be set free. You might recall in John chapter 8, there was a point where people that Jesus was speaking to professed belief in him. Until he said those words, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It was at that point that they made a protest. And then that protest escalated. And it escalated to the point that by the end of John chapter 8, they're picking up stones to kill him. So if you're willing, and you really need to be, in order to gain spiritual and mental health, relational health, you need to be willing to continue in his word in order to be set free. Uh, if you're a Protestant, if you're an evangelical, you've come from a background where uh, for a couple hundred years now, we've put so much emphasis on conversion that we have failed to teach people how to live. We have failed to teach people how to continue in his word and thus incorporate the glory and the power and the wonder of what it means to be in Christ as a matter of our daily life. And so, this is a point now on the confession of sin where I want to invite you, if you haven't done that, if that's not routine for you, that's okay. I mean, don't feel guilt. It's, it's, it, we're just not taught well these days. We are living in an era of the church where we're just not taught well. We're taught very superficially. We're given inspirational messages. We're giving, uh, given some kind of spectacle, some, some kind of improv. I mean, I don't know what you would call preaching in most American churches today, but it's something less than biblical. So if, if you're not used to continuing in Christ's word and thus experiencing the liberation that comes from the pollution of sin as you do, um, this is your point. This is an op opportunity for you to begin. On the other hand, if you do, and that is a regular thing for you, then you'll know exactly why I'm appealing to you to join me in this study as we consider the topic of confession, the Christian confession. What does it mean for believers to confess their sins? How? 
Why do we do it? And then we'll carry that word confession into our uh, confession of who Jesus is. And we'll see how that applies too. Now this is, this is going to be very enlightening. It's going to be very encouraging. It's going to be very liberating for you. And I'm really happy you're with me. And I hope I've said enough to convince you to continue with me. So what I'm going to do today is I want to just give you an outline. I'm going to read the text. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through... Well, we'll actually go into the second chapter. It's actually a pretty brief reading. Uh, it's only 10 verses in the first chapter, and then a couple verses in chapter 2, since it carries over. So, let's go ahead and get started. We'll read the text, and then today I just want to give you an outline and give you some kind of a highlight as to what you can expect in this study, so you can perhaps prepare yourself and uh, anticipate some of the, the joy that is yours in Christ that perhaps has been robbed. In fact, let me ask you this question. This was one of those moments when I wish I were not on this platform only. I wish I were with you in person. Because I'd love to know your answer. How many of you actually experience joy in your Christian life? That's an important question. Do you realize that it is your spiritual birthright to experience joy? That's right. It's part of understanding that we are walking in the light, walking in fellowship with God, walking in fellowship with the, the triune God, and with each other, that we discover that joy is the leading indicator that we're doing so, and doing so properly. But most Christians don't experience joy. They are um, experiencing something less than that. Sometimes it's downright spiritual depression. It's downright spiritual boredom. Uh, some are even experiencing conflict. Others are experiencing a crisis of faith. As a pastoral counselor, I realize that I deal with a lot of people who are not experiencing life on the uptick. And so if I sound a little on the negative side, it's only because that's my job, is <laughs> to work with people who are suffering. But it has been my experience um, that most Christians, whether they're in my purview of influence or not, are suffering. They're suffering from a, uh, a lack of joy, a lack of meaningfulness in their faith. And that breaks my heart. Pastorally and personally, as your brother in Christ, it breaks my heart. So let's get looking at this um, study. Let's begin the outline today. Just go over it in general. Uh, but it's an important outline. It's very important so that you can be prepared to delve into this text and find that joy that I'm speaking of here. Okay, so we're going to look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. And I'm reading from the new Legacy Standard Bible, which is a, 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 an update, the latest update revision to the New American Standard Bible. Okay, quote, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, 
And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, faithful and righteous, excuse me, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. End quote. Well, this text sets forth John's opening salvo against a group of people who had arisen within the Christian community and began to teach a heresy that came to be known as Gnosticism. And uh, let me give you a little historic background. This is very important. If we're, if we're going to grasp the meaning of confession, and so particularly the meaning of confessing sins, and what the role of confession is in the Christian life, we really do have to understand why John was even addressing it in the first place. So get, let me give you a little more historic background for you to grasp the truth of what John is saying to us in this letter and help us better understand why he wrote it. So Gnosticism, even though it wasn't called that early, uh, is a form of very unbiblical dualism in which spirit is entirely good and matter, anything material, is entirely evil. Now, this teaching can be summed up in five errors. And so, it's just very briefly, I'm taking this from the New American Standard Study Bible, by the way. I was really impressed that they had this kind of information within their pages. Um, so, number one, man's body, these Gnostics taught, which is matter, is therefore evil, and it is to be contrasted with God, who is Holy Spirit, and therefore good. Consequently, the only way you can come to God, and the only way you can come to know God, is to renounce the material, including your own body, and just be spiritual. Seek spiritual secret knowledge, some kind of spiritual ascendancy, so you can uh, ascend into God's presence. Point two. Salvation, therefore, is the escape from the material body. 
not by faith in Christ, but by special secret knowledge. Point three, Christ's true humanity was denied by the Gnostics. Obviously, they denied his humanity because to be human is to be material, is to have a body. And so some said Christ only seemed to have a body. And that's an ancient heresy called docetism, or docetism, from the Greek word dakeo, to only seem. And then there were others who said that the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at his baptism, <clears throat> excuse me, and left him before he died. And so this was the background then of much of 1 John, is this kind of heresy. Now, these people uh, had arisen with, from within the church itself, and they had begun to teach these things, but then they departed from the community and then began to work their way back into it evangelistically to teach these things. Uh, so point four, since the body was considered evil, it was to be treated harshly. So they came back into the community and they were teaching this aesthetic form of Gnosticism where you punish the body, where you deny the body, you deprive the body of food and water, and, and you do these things because the body is so evil and, and materialism is so bad, that, that, or the material is so bad, that you have to uh, really discipline it. We saw a lot of this in the medieval theology. So Gnosticism, while it was dealt with effectively by the apostles, and give, we've been given all the tools necessary to be able to discern it and be rid of it, it didn't leave. It didn't leave town. It may have packed a bag, but it didn't leave town. <laughs> it may have got on the Greyhound bus, but it took the, and circled back, and it's with us today. And then point five, paradoxically, this dualism of course, led to licentiousness, meaning that if our body is matter, and since it's just material, then the breaking of God's law with our bodies really doesn't matter, since it's considered evil anyway. And so it really didn't matter what you did with your body. There was no moral consequence. And so this is a very libertine form of spirituality that throw off, threw off all moral restraints in relation to God and relation to each other. So what, what mattered again was that we be spiritually clean, that we be spiritually ascending. And so if your body's evil, there's not a whole lot you can do with it that's any more evil than it already is. And of course, this led to a lot of um, apathy regarding uh, people's material needs, a lot of hardness of heart towards people who are suffering from a lack of shelter and food and, and clothing. Uh, and it also led to a lot of sexual immorality, because after all, it just didn't matter, as long as you stayed spiritually clean. Now, the, the tradition that I grew up in, uh, which uh, developed into uh, a more of a hyper-charismatic uh, tradition, uh, has um, a lot of guilt around this. There was, a, there was a lot of notion that somehow, no matter how bad some of our leaders were or some of our uh, teachers were, as long as they maintained, quote, the anointing, end quote, end quote, then everything was fine. They, they were still worth listening to. So no matter, no matter how immoral, no matter how bad these people were, now there were limits, of course, even within my denomination. I want to be fair. But, the, you know, our, our regional leaders sometimes just said that's enough. But 
it did lend itself to this kind of immorality. So that's Gnosticism. That's a, just a quick overview of what John is writing against. So John is writing as a pastor seeking to protect this community from that teaching. Because as I said, it was beginning to worm its way back into the community. These people had risen up within the church, they had begun to teach this, and then they departed the church, formed their own community, and now they were back knocking on the doors and offering their version of the gospel. And John is writing to counter that, to bring the Christians, to protect the Christians in this community, probably the region of Ephesus, to protect them from this heresy. So, okay, so that's what that's about. Therefore, when John begins to write his letter, he says, and of course, this is very important, even the first several words here of this text are very important. What was from the beginning? In other words, John is hearkening them back to the truth. There, there, was, there was no new insight beyond the apostolic proclamation. And throughout church history, this has been the case. Uh, from the Roman church to other traditions that developed under the church fathers, and then throughout the church history, we have discovered these people who come along with these new special insights that nobody has ever taught before. And some of this even came up during the Reformation. And ever since then, there have been these systems of theology that have developed that were never taught before. They're, they're, they're completely new insights. If anyone ever comes up with some kind of secret knowledge or some kind of new insight, and no one has ever taught it before in church history, then you need to just turn and run. Don't walk, run. And John is countering then this new insight by the Gnostics by saying right out of the gate, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. See, he's countering this notion that Jesus just seemed to be a man. He was just kind of a, a hologram walking around that looked very lifelike, that looked very human, but he really wasn't. He was just a, a super spiritual being that just appeared to be human. So John said, no, no, we, we heard him. We've seen him with our eyes. We beheld and touched him with our hands. This is very real. This is very human. This is very material. And he says the life was manifested. And we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life. So eternal life is not just as some abstract concept. It's not something that we can turn inward in, an, in a subjective manner. It's not something we can say, well, you know, eternal life is something that kind of airy-fairy out there that we are ascending towards. He's saying here that Jesus himself is the manifestation of eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So this is the apostolic proclamation, that the incarnation is a true incarnation. And it's the incarnation of life, eternal life, the word of life, which was with the Father from the beginning and has now been manifested to us. 
And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, he says. And he does so for the very purpose. He proclaims this word to us so that we may also have fellowship in the apostolic community. We may have fellowship with the apostles and with their proclamation. And then he goes on, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. So you see the beauty of this, because uh, John is saying that we are proclaiming these things so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the triune God, and we don't want our joy to be incomplete by holding it just for ourselves, we want to proclaim it to you. Our joy will be incomplete unless we include you in on it. So the apostles were not some kind of secret gurus who said, I've got mine, and then ran up onto a mountaintop and then sat there and enjoyed it, or forced people to come to them in some kind of a, a, a papal audience where they could hardly be approached. No, the apostles went to them. The apostles went out and as missionaries. And they, they wanted to breach the people with the proclamation of the gospel so that their joy, the joy of the apostles themselves, would extend then to the greater community, and therefore our joy would be made complete. I realize if you're reading from a King James or a New King James, it says, your joy may be made complete. But whether it's yours or ours, the point is, remains is that John doesn't see that his apostolic joy can be complete apart from sharing it with those around him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a great reason to be an evangelist? To know that as, as precious as the joy of our salvation is to us, that it remains incomplete until we share it with someone else. And then he goes on to say and talk about the message we have heard from him. Now, I'm going to pause there uh, because I'm going to go over this outline with you and so help you understand then. Well, let me, you know, in fact, let me just go on. Let me just go on until we get to verse 9. So the message we have heard from him and declared to you is that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. If we are saying that we have fellowship with God, and yet walk in the darkness, as is evidenced by our lifestyle, then we lie and do not do the truth. Very important. Let me say it again. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and it's evident in the way we are living. If our life is filled with moral decadence, selfishness, self-centeredness, violence, addiction, hatred, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, then that's darkness, folks. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how much you profess to be a Christian. If you're living that way, if you're walking in darkness, in the darkness, there's a definite article there. So there's a definite darkness. And it always has to do 
with our moral behavior towards God and each other, our moral behavior towards God's law, and our how we treat others. And if we are living that way, we lie and do not know the truth. Now, what he's talking about there in verse 6, he's making this dramatic contrast between the um, Gnostics, because the Gnostics, again, had wormed their way into the community. So there was a mixed community now. It looked like the church, and it was the church. There were many genuine believers that he's writing to, but there were also those who had set up camp within the church already. And so there was this dual confession going on. There's the apostolic proclamation, and then there's the teaching of the Gnostics. And so he, when he says we, he's talking to everyone. And he's talking specifically about the Gnostics. So the message that he brings is that God is light, and him, in him there is no darkness at all. In verse 6, he says, Now, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. He's saying if you're a Gnostic, you're not a believer, is what he's saying. If verse 6 applies to you, you're not a believer. But, verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, that word fellowship is very important. It's koinonia. It comes up 20 times in the New Testament. It's a Greek word for koinonia. And in this case, it's talking about our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. And our fellowship with God within the letter of John, within this context, and while within the context of the New Testament, when we talk about believers having fellowship with God, we're not talking about it being grounded in experience. Today I feel like I'm in fellowship with God, and yesterday I didn't feel like it at all, and uh, I hope to feel like I'm in fellowship tomorrow. We don't move back and forth within fellowship with God or not, depending on our personal subjective experience that day. In other words, if we're having a good day, we're in fellowship with God, and if we're having a bad day, the bad day then maybe we're not. And that's not how it works. No, your, your fellowship with God is unconditional. It is a place that you live. He has translated you from the, the realm of Satan into the kingdom of his dear son. And that is unconditional, that is permanent, and that is absolute. So, let me put it this way. A believer is never not in fellowship with God. Whether you believe it or not, or whether you, excuse me, whether you feel it or not, or whether you experience it or not, is not as important as you knowing that you are. So God does not come and go. Your fellowship with God is not subject to some kind of um, subjective experience. That's very important. And it ought to be very encouraging to you. It ought to be very um, assurance. There should be a lot of assurance for you. You don't have to feel like you are in fellowship with God to know that you are. I, as I say, I spend a lot of time in a tradition where people, if you ask them how they were, they would get all bubbly and say, oh, I'm so blessed. <laughs> I remember one guy in particular, he was just so blessed all the time. And that was when he wasn't drunk. <laughs> and so he just thought that was the Christian thing to do. You know, when he was 
when he was struggling with his weaknesses, he was out of fellowship with God. And when he wasn't struggling for the moment, he was so blessed. And, and the fact is, he was always blessed, that God had never left him. And the paradox is, if he had been able to accept that, it might have gone a long way. Just that assurance might have gone a long way to helping him overcome his alcoholism. And so it was a sad thing that it was his te the teaching he had bought into that somehow he could move in and out of fellowship with God that kept him in that state of alcoholic behavior. So we are in fellowship with God. Now it is possible to be in and out of fellowship with one another, and that's as it should be in some cases, if in fact we are in fellowship with people who are teaching things that are contrary to the apostolic proclamation. So, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here we are. We are looking at this cleansing. We're back to the reality that we are cleansed from sin. What I want you to understand here about verse 7 is that this word cleanses is in the perfect tense. Now, this is such a beautiful thing. Hang on to it. Write it down. Verse 7 is in the perfect tense. Cleanses, meaning it's an ongoing, continual cleansing. Because we walk in the light, because we have this fellowship with the Father and the Son by the Spirit, we are experiencing also the fact that God is continually cleansing us from how much sin? All sin, he says. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, perfect tense, from all sin. Not just the sin that we acknowledge, not just the sin that we remember, not just the sins that we are going to still yet to fall into, but all sin, past, present, future. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time when you were able to fully confess your sins? And the answer to that is no. You've been able to confess your known sins. You've been able to confess your besetting sins, which is something that we all do. We all are very aware of those, but we're not just limiting here to, to those that we are most conscious of. No, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is back to the breathtaking scope and nature of the atonement on our behalf. John is saying to us today in this text that the, 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 because of the apostolic proclamation we have come into the light as a result of that proclamation and that light has includes fellowship with the father and the son and the holy spirit and in that fellowship as we walk in that light that the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin And he does so continually. 
In other words, what I'm saying to you is this wondrous reality that you never walk around accumulating moral guilt before God. Now let that settle in for a few moments. A lot of people think that if they don't get back to the liturgy or if they don't get back to the Sunday night evangelistic service and go down to the altar call and confess their sins, that they're in trouble. There are a lot of people who think that they get to the point where they get to their prayer time, they go into their closet and they confess their sins and they're good. And within a couple hours, they're beginning to accumulate guilt again because of the sins they're committing, even unconsciously. And so they got to get back to the confessional, if you will. They got to get back to whatever that looks like for them, is whether it's uh, uh, in, on their couch on, on a, in an early morning when they're just doing their quiet time, or they're going to the liturgy and they're standing with the congregation and confessing sins publicly through some kind of a rote recital of a liturgical prescription and then receive absolution from the clergyman or whether they're going to the altar call on Sunday night at a little Baptist church. They believe that somehow in between there, they are accumulating guilt. And that's not what this text teaches. And this should set you free to realize that the quality of light and the quality of fellowship that you have with the Father and the Son and the Spirit is of such a profound nature and the atonement on your behalf is so permanent so final that God is continually cleansing you from all sin all sin now if you've never heard this before you might start questioning whether Rick has lost his mind here <laughs> but I'm not I'm very I'm very sane on this point I'm not the only one that says this I'm, Far better New Testament scholars and, and theologians than I will ever be say the same thing. This, this is a common understanding of the grammar of 1 John 1, seven, And it's a beautiful thing. Tragically, it's just not taught. Throughout church history, it's been a point of control. Especially in the hierarchy of the Roman church. And the churches like it. Where they have a a, a bishop and a priest and a weekly service where they assign themselves to that hierarchy as being the dispensers of grace, as if grace is not available to you any other means or ways than through the clergy and through their sacraments and through their uh, perceived magical powers of absolution. It serves them to believe that somehow you are needing to get back to them the following week because you've been accumulating moral guilt throughout the week, and yet you may even be separated from God. You may lose your fellowship with God if you don't get back there and experience the public profession of sins and experience the priestly absolution. Folks, all that is, it's a, re, a throwback to the Levitical priesthood of the temple. A system that Jesus uh, condemned and that God judged in 70 AD completely, utterly. So while it was beneficial to the 
church hierarchy to keep you thinking that somehow in between uh, services that you are accumulating guilt and you got to run back and you got to confess your sins in order to be forgiven. That's not the biblical witness. The New Testament teaches that we confess because we are forgiven, not because we need to be forgiven. I'll explain that in a few moments. So, if we say we have no sin, now he's, he's going to go back down verse 8. He's going back to the Gnostics. Contrary to all this beautiful thing that I just told you about how God deals with us and how we relate to God now on that basis, he says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 8, he's back to talking about the unbeliever. If you are professed believer and you say you have no sin, that, that, that sin is not a problem for you, it's never been a problem for you, wasn't a problem for you in your conversion, it's not going to be a problem for you ever, then you're not a believer. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Listen, we don't deal with the sin problem, either at conversion or throughout the Christian life, by simply denying it's a reality by denying its uh, certainty any more than we deal with the sin problem by moving into some kind of morbid introspection where we are constantly scraping our psyche for the latest sin we might have committed and using the law, the so-called moral law, the Ten Commandments, as our guide. Both of those are extremes and both of those are errors. So we don't deal with the sin problem by denying it or dismissing it. Well, I went through a season in the tradition I pretty much grew up in where you know it was all about love, acceptance, and forgiveness, and we just didn't deal with sin. We didn't want to talk about it. Ah, you know, you talk about sin, people won't come to church. So we'll just talk about love. You know, it's kind of a holdover from the 60s. But it's a very loving thing to give people the truth. And John's saying quite clearly here, in contrast to the apostolic proclamation, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now let's look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, back to being believers now, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let's look at that word confess. This is a text that many of us are familiar with because we've gone to it so many times. The average Christian is very sensitive to the nature and the reality of sin. And we've gone to this test many, many times because of it. It's promise. There's comfort in this text. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let's look at the word confess and see if that's his intention for us. There's nothing wrong with how we have typically perceived it, except for a few things that I'll talk to you about in a moment. A few dangers. What John is saying here in verse 9 is if we agree with God about sin... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Greek, it's one long linear real. This happens, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens. 
So the word confess here is homologeo in Greek, and it simply means to say the same thing. So, this is the nature of confession for believers. This, verse 9, is less about confessing, continually confessing, besetting, or particular sins, as it is adopting a stance, a disposition about sin, in which we say the same thing that God says about sin. We don't come up with some subjective idea about sin. We don't come up with some philosophical view of sin. We don't look even to our religious tradition to define sin for us. What John is saying here is that it is the apostolic proclamation that we are to come into agreement and say the same thing that God says about sin. And that's the nature, and that's indicative, by the way, of the believer. A believer is someone who says the same thing that God says about sin. A believer is not someone who says the same thing that their tradition says, or their philosophical point does, or psychology says, or the culture says about sin. I mean, that's going on a lot. Yesterday, I read that the Anglican Communion voted in its synod to begin to bless same-sex marriages. Now, while that may appear very enlightened, it may appear very um, uh, progressive and very nice, very kind, it's not doing what we're called to do here. It's dismissing sin. In other words, they're taking what God says about sin and saying, well, we disagree, God. <laughs> we disagree. We think we will, in your name, by the way, say something different about sin than you do. And that's what the Gnostics were doing. The Gnostics were in the church saying something different about sin than God did. But John is saying in verse 9, it is indicative of a true believer to be in a settled disposition and mindset where we share the divine mind of God and his perspective on sin. We say the same thing, homologeo. We say the same thing that God says about sin. And because that is our settled stance, because that's indicative of where we live, in that sense, we are constantly confessing sins. We are, we are never not confessing sin. We are, we are not, as I said earlier, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday saying the same thing as God says about sin, and then Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and Sunday saying something different. No, we are in a settled state of mind where we are in agreement with the divine perspective, the divine mind, the mind of our Heavenly Father, and as ch children of God, we are speaking and saying the same thing that God says about sin on an ongoing basis, 24-7, as we live and breathe, and therefore, that's what he means by confessing sins here.
So this verse is not necessarily at all about some contingent, conditional confession necessary for the believer to continue to receive forgiveness and cleansing. He's stating a fact. He's not saying, he's not prescribing some conditional spirituality here where if we confess our sin, then God will be faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's how most Christians have read that text for millennia. But you, as you just hear now, as you understand, that's not what he's saying. See, this is why, this is why, beloved, we have to go deeper into the Word. We have to understand the underlying text, the, uh, the, the Greek text. We have to, or the Hebrew text, if you're in the Old Testament. You have to understand that even the grammar, the, the tense. What is the tense of that? Is what tense is that word in? What is that verb tense? And in this case. It illuminates the whole thing. And in understanding the Greek word underneath cleanse, or confess, excuse me, confess, hamalageo, say the same thing, we now realize that, wow, confession means a lot more than I ever thought it does. I mean, confession engages and uh, involves the entirety of our thinking. It involves the whole view of life, a whole world view, where we don't have the prerogative to simply confess once a week some well-known and plaguing sins, receive absolution, and think that we fulfilled verse 9. That's not at all what he's saying here. It's much more demanding than that. It's much more uh, comprehensive than that. The believer is somebody who says the same thing about uh, sin as God does on an ongoing basis. And then in verse 10 again now, he reminds us once again, if we say we have not sinned, as did the Gnostics, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So these are very important realities. This is liberating And it draws you into a deeper fellowship and understanding of your fellowship, I should say, with your Heavenly Father and with His Son through the ministry of the Spirit. One of the reasons in 1 John chapter 3 that John so marvels when he says, um, let me turn there real quick, see how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. And we are. What John is saying there is that we are not just children of God by some kind of sentimental, philosophical perspective, but that we are, in fact, in reality, children of God, meaning we share a common nature with our Heavenly Father. We share a common view of things with our Heavenly Father, and therefore we are His children. It is evidence that we are indeed children of God. So you possess in your fellowship with God, which you have. If you are in Christ, you have fellowship with God. 
And that fellowship means that you share with him a common nature. You are made partakers in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, verse 6, I think it is. So you are been given a new nature. You are participants in the divine nature. You are children of God, and that means that you share his mind, his heart. His law has been written on your mind and on your hearts. He has placed his spirit within you. You have a new nature. You are being conformed, ever increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. So there's the contrast. Within this community, we're going to close on this. Within this community, there is two teachings. Just like within perhaps your community, there are two teachings happening, or maybe more. But what concerns us is the proclamation of the apostles. What concerns us is the apostolic proclamation. And what was happening here in this region is that these people had arisen up within the church at first and began to teach perverse things, things that were not part of the apostolic proclamation. And then they left, they departed the church, thinking they were too spiritual to be amongst these people. And then they developed their own little community and their own leaders and their own evangelists. And they're beginning to send these evangelists back into the Christian community. And John knows about this. He's writing against it. And that's why he has these contrasts throughout this text. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not know, do the truth. He's not talking about a believer there. He's talking about the Gnostics. The same thing. And verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's talking about the Gnostics there. He's not talking about believers. If people are saying that and professing to be believers, they're not. That's your point of discernment. And then verse 10 again, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let me just share with you real quickly what I did there from verse 5 to verse 10. As I took a couple of colored pencils... And with red, I underlined the verses that he's speaking to and about the Gnostics. And then in green, I wrote the, underlined the verses where he's speaking about what's indicative for believers. And I look at that now, and I can see very clearly that there's a contrast there. And it's an important contrast for us to meditate on, to integrate into our thinking. So there's some liberation why does a Christian confess sins? Are we to confess sins? Well, the answer to that is, it's all that Christians do. That's all we ever do. We're, we are in a settled predisposition on this point. If somebody asks you, do you confess your sins? The proper answer would be, that's all I ever do. <laughs> 24-7. I'm never not confessing my sins. Now, we'll talk about this some more in regards to particular confession. We'll talk about confessing our faults one to another and praying for each other that we might be healed. But let me just close now with a reminder that there are two dangers here. Given what we've just said, there are two dangers that we have to avoid. That is, we have to keep 
We have to avoid thinking that we have to keep confessing in order to remain forgiven. That's a lie. Let me say that again. We don't have to keep confessing in order to remain forgiven. We Rather, we keep confessing because we are forgiven. Regeneration always precedes faith and divine acceptance always precedes repentance. Grace is always in the initiatory position, not us. So we want to be careful not to ever view confession as some meritorious ground for forgiveness. You, let me put it this way. If you're in, in, a, in a liturgical church and you go to church on Sunday, you have to change your mindset. You can stand up and confess your sins on Sunday, but it's not so that you can get forgiveness. The proper view, the proper biblical view of that would be to confess your sins because you are forgiven and have the clergy affirm that. What the clergy can never do is grant you forgiveness. That's something that God did because tied directly to the cross and the resurrection of his son. No clergyman has the authority to give you any forgiveness that you didn't already possess before you walked into that church service. And secondly, the other danger is that we would begin to treat confession as simply a remote or rote exercise of the lips and not as a settled disposition. In other words, you can stand up and recite the liturgy every week and walk away and still not have a mind that's in agreement with God on the understanding of sin. We don't we can say the liturgy and leave the service and still not say the same thing that God says about sin throughout the week. Isn't that what's happening in the Anglican communion right now? Even as we speak? And those who voted to begin to bless same sex marriages Aren't they saying one thing in the liturgy and then going out and confessing throughout the week that they don't agree at all with God about sin? And if they think that they can go back to the liturgy on Sunday and go through that exercise and have the priestly absolution mean anything, they're kidding themselves. John says here that they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. Well, this is an introduction. <laughs> We're going to look at this much more deeply. And as we do, we will be set free even further. If we continue in his word, Jesus promised, we will show ourselves to be his disciples indeed, and the truth will set us free. We shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. I suspect that much of what I've said today has already set you free. I hope that's the case. May the Lord strengthen you, encourage you, and continue to illuminate your mind to the truth that is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Amen.